It's old-timey crimey. I am Christy. And I am Amber. And we are here this week continuing what we call here on the show and in this household, Spooky Ween, wherein we tell you spooky stories, some crime-related like this week, sometimes not because it's harder than you think to find old-timey crimey spooky stories. And frankly, we just go off the rails sometimes, as I kind of did in our tiny... Yes, our tiny over on the Patreon, which you can get to patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey or just click the link in our show notes. Or there is a link tree in all of our social media that you can find and it has links to everything you can do to support us. And you can find the Patreon there too. So for just five bucks a month, you can hear Amber break all the rules. <laughs> yes. She was like, this crime wasn't before the 19th. It was not. And it was kind of a feel-good, spooky thing. You can hear the question mark in her voice because we're still not settled on that debate. In fact, we're still sort of unsettled. I feel like most people would be unsettled. But it's kind of a feel-good crime Yes, yes. So yes, you get those. Those are our old tiny crimies. They're not really tiny They generally are about half an hour. Sometimes we go a little bit longer. So don't let the name fool you. You're still getting plenty of content. And then you also get our extra extras at the end of each month where we have a guest on and each of us talks about a crime related to a specific theme. And we have lots of fun coming up with those. Last month was God Made Me Do It. And next month will be even more fun. Yes, I have a book. So... And it's called The Devil Made Me Do It. <laughs> Got it in my little eBay thing. So yeah, five bucks a month gets you all of that. And of course, our eternal gratitude and me singing your name. And a shout out at the end of the show. Can't beat that deal, she said, like she's in an infomercial. So we are going to tell you a ghostly murder story. Literally, ghostly murder story. It's the ghostliest murder story I can imagine. Yeah, yeah. Not many people uh, go murdering ghosts. Yeah, yeah. And then I'm also going to tell Amber something afterwards that I went down a little rabbit hole when I was looking at the Newgate calendar for this, and I found a weird superstition that also was accompanied by an illustration. Oh, hooray. And so I'm going to be telling Amber a little bit about this weird superstition that I found, an interesting practice that they used to do in the olden times. In, in the olden times. I, uh, I say we could always bring it back. Uh, once you hear it, you're going to say probably not. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, Fair enough. So, the Hammersmith Ghost, which is our topic this week, The story was included in the 1815 book Apparitions, or The Mystery of Ghosts, Hobgoblins, and Haunted Houses, which, (laughs) I love this description, Joseph Taylor, the author, tells us it was compiled, quote, for the purpose of eradicating those fears which the ignorant, the weak, and the superstitious are but too apt to encourage for want of properly examining into the causes of such absurd impositions. Which is his absurd way of, or not absurd way, his condescending way of saying that uh, people believe shit they shouldn't believe. And so I'm going to include all these stories of ghost stories and then kind of debunk them so that people will stop believing them. So Nice try. Yeah, right? The first sightings of the Hammersmith ghost, as it would come to be known, 
were in November 1803, and these were generally around the Hammersmith churchyard, according to reports from those who interacted with the ghost. Now, this ghost actually attacked people physically, grabbing people, sometimes even by the throat. This feels violent. It does. <laughs> yes. In most cases, it's your standard ghost description. It's tall, garbed in white cloth. It's like a shroud. Some people said he had horns, though. And uh, glass eyes. Which oh, is I didn't see that one. I did see the horns. Yeah, horns and glass eyes popped up in a couple of places, and that was interesting to me. Yeah. <laughs> Considering the explanation we later get. Does the standard ghost behavior, at least for a little while it seems, of showing up at a particular time of night? In this case, the Hammersmith ghost would materialize when the church bell rang one and would do its haunting around Black Lion Lane. It was also said to haunt St. Paul's because people said that was the churchyard where the ghost had been buried when it was, you know, not a ghost, when it was a deceased human. That's about a mile from the Black Lion Lane on foot, so this is not isolated to one spot. We have a traveling ghost. Traveling ghost. So the idea was that this person who'd been buried at St. Paul's was a man who had died by suicide the previous year. And there's this idea that churchyards, graveyards are consecrated ground. And so if you bury somebody who died by suicide there, their soul would be unsettled. Now that makes sense, but I'm actually impressed by this suicide. So they think it actually belonged to a villager who had committed suicide by slitting his own throat the year before. Do you know how hard that would be? That is really not a good way to go. I'm impressed by it, though. <laughs> it's terrifying. I did look in the newspapers from the year prior. Actually, I went the two years prior since it started in November. It's like, well, last year, but maybe it was the year before. I found one weird story of a suicide where a guy just kept on, like, stabbing himself in the throat. Oh, maybe that was the same one. Maybe. It was... <sighs> the only thing was it wasn't super close. I looked on the map. It came up because I went, like, suicide, Hammersmith. Those were kind of my search terms on okay. the newspapers. Makes sense. He had gone to Hammersmith, and then when he was, like, on his way home, he didn't live in Hammersmith. When he was on his way home, that's when he died by suicide. That's why it came up in my search terms. It was the only one that came up. So I was thinking, well, I mean, he could have been still buried at St. Paul's. Maybe it was like a home church deal where he yeah. moved away, but still went there. And so they buried him there. I don't know. So I did look for British pubs. Of course you did. And this neighborhood, according to Google Maps, is billed as eclectic and artsy but they sure don't have very many creative pub names. There was one called Temperance. I like that. Okay. All right. It's, I don't... If you're artsy, I'm expecting greatness out of you. Well, there was one called Checkmate. Yeah. I've been there. Oh. <laughs> yeah, well, That's cool. It's more in the Kensington area for any of our Brit listeners, but it's kind of close-ish. And it has, like, black and white checked floors. It's a great As bar. As it should. Oh, of course. You've got to. I seem to remember them having some tables with chess boards on them, but I couldn't see that in the pictures. And it was mm, 
almost a decade since I've been there, so my memories aren't super sharp. But you know what? At the same time, also, I, I was drinking I, beer. <laughs> I feel with COVID, you would not want to encourage people to share pieces and stuff like that, probably. Yeah. I mean, the pictures could be more recent. Yeah. But if there were older pictures from even like two years ago, you, you would think that would In the show before up. times. In the before times. Well, they don't want they don't want anyone to get their hopes up that they'll be able to play chess. True. Maybe they removed those pictures. So, but yeah, it was a great pub. Uh, I really liked it. And uh, we, we met a band from South Africa there. Cool. <laughs> they were really nice guys. So, this ghost. Back to the Hammersmith ghost. In one case of an interaction with the ghost, a pregnant woman who was, or would be, soon to have her second child went into a dead faint after having a run-in with the ghost. Although, in this case, the report happens rather early in the evening by this ghost standards. Instead of it being 1 a.m., it's 10 p.m. She saw the figure among the tombstones at the churchyard, described it as very tall and very white, and when she tried to run, it grabbed her and pressed her in its arms. That's when she fainted, and she didn't wake up for hours. I, I have questions. I mean, later on, the ghost does show up at earlier hours. But I'm just wondering, what, what's she doing wandering around a graveyard? <laughs> Maybe yeah. passing through, I guess. A, a shortcut, I suppose. But, yeah, so... The neighbors found her and took her home, put her to bed, quote, from which, alas, she never rose. Okay. This is my big problem here, because she's describing it. Now, your story actually says she woke up. My story says she never woke up. Mm. So it says a pregnant woman, never named in reports, crossed the churchyard, described a tall white figure rising from the tombstones, grabbed her as she ran away, caused her to faint. She was discovered hours later by neighbors who took her home and put her to bed, and then she never woke up. She died from fright. But if she never woke up, then where do we get the description? Exactly. Not only of the ghost itself, but of her encounter with it. Exactly. So I immediately want to call bullshit on the whole story. The pregnant woman never died, and certainly not from fright. And I, I highly doubt that she was assaulted by a specter. I agree with that. And it, it, it says she died after two days, which does fright really take two days to kill you? Very slow-moving fright. Because I would think dying of fright would be probably a heart attack, something yeah. along those lines. Maybe she had a big heart attack and then little heart attacks afterwards until she finally died. I don't know. Uh, yeah, it, it definitely there were questions there. The apparitions book I read said, this sham ghost has certainly much to answer for. I actually saw that quote in... The Newgate calendar later, the Newgate calendar, which is basically just plagiarizing straight from the, well, the, that's fair. the ghost book. Now, but this was really freaking people out in the neighborhood. Well, there was the other story about how it scared the driver of a wagon pulled by eight horses and carrying 16 people. It scared them so much that the driver fled on foot, leaving the horse's wagon and passengers behind. He was just noping right out of there. He was like, I'm having none of this. What happened to going down with your ship, driver? Right? Yeah, there was a story in the Morning Chronicle about this, that some papers reported that the ghost cut the horse's harness, but the story is correcting that, saying that the ghost was not so mischievous as to do that. So Not so mischievous. People, in general, started not going out at night, except for those who decided it was time for a little neighborhood watch action. 
Well, actually, you know what? Hold on, time out. Because oh, sure. I have a I have a little uh, interview with Thomas Groom, a local servant who described his encounter. Ooh, let's hear it. I was going through the churchyard between 8 and 9 o'clock with my jacket under my arm and my hands in my pocket when some person came from behind a tombstone, which there are four square in the yard behind me, and caught me fast by the throat with both hands and held me fast. My fellow servant who was going on before heard me scuffling, asked what was the matter, then whatever it was gave me a twist round and I saw nothing. I gave a bit of a push out with my fist, felt something soft like a greatcoat. Did it say what occupation he was? He was a servant. He was a servant. Okay, yeah, you did say that. Okay, all right, because I have a brewer later on, and occupations are actually, I think, important to some of the information that comes out later, towards the very end. So questions I have arise from that. So servant and brewer, we'll keep those in mind. So yeah, people, a lot of them are staying home. And those of them that aren't are going out ghost hunting. As you do. (laughs) Armed patrols going out with guns to shoot the ghost. They did decide that this had to be some jackass in a white sheet. They were like, this is a person. But they still planned on killing it. Him. It. Her. Them. Whatever it is. Uh, Spectre. So, you know, this was people roaming out, wandering around with their guns. And in late December, the village watchman, William Girdle, said that he saw and chased the ghost. And during the chase, the ghost disrobed, took off a white sheet or maybe a tablecloth as it ran. So this probably is where the idea that, oh, this is not a ghost. This is a person pretending to be a ghost came from. Yeah, makes sense. And remember William Girdle, too. He's going to come up. Now... Other than that particular encounter, they weren't having a lot of success because Hammersmith was a maze of like alleys and by lanes and paths. And what you want to do is you want to cover entrances and exits. But when you have this basically spaghetti of roads, yeah. this pile of spaghetti of roads, you can't do that. And so they weren't keeping the ghost from doing its thing. It was still terrorizing people. Mainly, it seems like travelers get mentioned a lot, which that seems to me, if they just mention travelers and then don't mention any names, that feels like the paper sensationalizing, maybe, or storytellers in general at some point adding travelers to it because you can just say, oh, well, they were travelers. They were just passing through. And then the question becomes, well, why don't we have their names? Where did the story come from? So I have to kind of look askance at that. Yeah, well, there was not a lot of names given for a lot of these encounters. Like, the pregnant woman doesn't have a name. Well, she's a woman. She was also a woman in the 1800s, so that's, that's definitely a possibility. But it didn't even mention her husband. Then you had cases of mistaken identity. People thinking that anyone dressed all in white was the ghost. So, uh, by January of 1804... This has been going on for a couple months now. And 23-year-old bricklayer Thomas Millwood had been mistaken for the ghost twice. The thing about bricklayers is they wore all white from head to toe. So the description here of his uniform is linen trousers entirely white, washed very clean, a waistcoat of flannel apparently new, very white, and an apron which he wore round him. His trousers came down almost to the edge of his shoes. Which were also white. That's pants. I mean, that, that's what they're supposed to do. Yeah. He's not wearing pantaloons. That's a strange description. Anyhow, his mother-in-law tells the story about this. One Saturday, 
he told her that two ladies and a gentleman had taken fright at him as he was coming down the terrace, thinking he was the ghost. He told them he was no more ghost than any of them, and asked the gentleman, using a bad word, as it was literally quoted in the trial transcripts, if he wished for a punch in the head. Do you wish for a punch in the fucking head? <laughs> Would you wish for the... Oh, now I got to... Oh, it's probably damn. Do you wish for a punch in the daggone it head? Yeah, right. <laughs> That's probably more like it. Now, when he told his family about this, they said, you need to take precautions. Like, put a coat on. A dark colored, bright colored, any color that's not white yes. coat on over your all-white outfit so that people, the people running around with guns who want to shoot at something that is described as being all in white, won't maybe, I don't know, shoot you? Well, and I'm thinking it, it's January, so it should be pretty cold there. You should want to wear a coat anyway, you'd think. You would think. But Thomas took no precautions, and in his all-white garb, he went out on the night of January 3rd, 1804. Meanwhile, we have a customs officer named Francis Smith, 29. The Newgate calendar gives this somewhat weird description. A short but well-made man with dark hair and eyebrows. Uh, like, okay, like, why, of all the things we're describing, are we describing his eyebrows? It just throws me off a little bit. I, I bet he had, like, the Groucho Marx caterpillars or something. Oh, there you go. Maybe, maybe. He had decided to go to Black Lion Lane, since the ghost had been seen there a lot, and lie in wait. He found a nice little spot where he wouldn't be easily seen, and he could keep watch with his gun. He himself had never seen the ghost. But he did know William Girdle, the village watchman who had chased the ghost less than a week before, actually. Francis Smith asked William Girdle to join him on this ghost hunting adventure. And so William Girdle agreed. He said that after he called the hour, which was part of the watchman responsibilities, he, they would uh, have a little ghost hunting party. I think you call the hour kind of like an all-clear. Watchmen were precursors to policemen, obviously. Yeah. I feel like it was just like, 10 o'clock, all good. Exactly. <laughs> 11 o'clock, all good. 12 o'clock, it's a ghost. Just like that. <laughs> so, exactly. So they agreed that they would have a watchword. They would have a kind of a code phrase that they would go back and forth with in order to make sure that when William Girdle joined him... He knew it was William and not the ghost. It went, who comes there? A friend. Advance, friend. So it is a gloomy, murky night. I actually looked it up and the moon was in its last quarter. So not a lot of moonlight there. Of course you looked it up. <laughs> you looked at me like, of course, as soon as I said I looked it up. Of course I did. This is not the first time I have looked at the faces of the moon when researching for the podcast. Was Mercury in retrograde? <laughs> yeah, well, probably, given everything that happened. Oh, so, yeah, and Black Lion Lane was said to be dark in general anyhow because it was very narrow, and it was bordered by tall hedges on each side. So any light from other houses, which is pretty much all the light you're going to have, maybe a... a street light with a candle is not really going to reach 
into Black Lion Lane. Maybe that's how it got its uh, name. Maybe, actually, yeah. Somebody saw a dog there. It was dark. It's a black lion! That's what it was. That's exactly what happened, yes. In my mind, at least. I'm good with that. Francis Smith is in Black Lion Lane. He looks out. He sees a figure in white. So he called out to the spirit, Who comes there? He got no answer. Then he called out again, and the spirit was still approaching. It didn't answer his second call, so he whipped out his gun and he shot it. Okay, so his second call, and I don't know that I would answer this asshole either. Damn you! Who are you and what are you? Damn you, I will shoot you! If you don't speak is how I actually have that quote ended. And that actually came from Tom's sister, Ann Millwood. Yes. So, yeah, he... It's definitely interesting to me. But before he could answer, he shot him. Exactly. An immediate gunshot happened after that. Boom. Damn you, I'll shoot you. Boom. Not giving the person a chance to answer. I personally think he says he called out twice. I don't think he did. Exactly. I'm right there with you. I, have I, I think yeah. he called out once and then shot before anyone could even answer him. And that's what his sister kind of backed up, too. Yeah, she definitely backs that up That because she, she was out there watching. She says her brother left the house where she lived with her parents, with their parents, between 10 and 11 that night. He left around 11. She walked outside and was watching him leave, and that's when she heard the voice say exactly what you just said. So, yes, I, I, I call bullshit on that. And so Francis Smith stepped out to examine the ghost on the ground and discovered that the figure in white was actually Thomas Millwood in his bricklayer's garb. And then I get that they think that the ghost has killed at least one person. If this story of the pregnant woman had gone around town, I understand. But justice is a thing. You know, mm-hmm. try to, I don't know if a citizen's arrest is really a thing, but they just have random dude at the, as the watchman. So just try to arrest the guy. Why? I just don't understand. So, and the thing is, the watchman dude, William Girdle, heard the gunshot, but thought nothing of it, as he often heard gunshots at night. What even is his job? <laughs> I, don't, I don't even understand. He, well, I came up, I, I, I know what the answer is. He's the watchman. He's just there to watch. He's not the listening man. He's not the hearing man. That's somebody else's job. He has one job, and it's to watch. And he didn't see any ghosts. So, yeah, that that actually killed me. (laughs) He's like, yeah, I heard it. I didn't think, "Mm, there's gunshots at night all the time. And I'm like, then go and do something about that. Why are there gunshots at night all the time in a village in London? So luckily, some other people actually gave a damn. Uh, So Smith's neighbor, John Locke, and another gentleman, George Stowe, came running at the sound of the shot. And they came upon, uh, them as well as William Girdle, came upon a, quote, very much agitated Francis Smith, Mm -hmm. who then took them to the body of Thomas Millwood. And then back at the Millwood house, Anne, upon hearing the gunshot, went to her parents. They were in bed. She said, hey, I'm worried about Thomas. I just heard a gunshot. And much like William Girdle, they were like, yeah, it's probably nothing. (laughs) Happens all the time. So (laughs) she went out to check, and she found her brother dead. Well, dying on the ground. 
that was at the point that Smith had gone for help, so he returns with some aid in a few well, minutes. that's another point of contention. I don't think he went for help. Oh, you think that they came at the sound of the gunshot, unlike William Hurdle. And Erdl. ran into him. Oh, yes, yes. I, I believe I, that, I don't yeah. think he was, he wasn't yelling for help. Yeah. I think he was actually going to maybe try to run away, and then was like, oh, okay, you're here now. Uh, come quick. <laughs> I shot the ghost. It's definitely a ghost and not a living human being. Oops. So Millwood was taken to the Black Lion Inn, but uh, he was already, as the Newgate calendar put it, quite dead. Mm-hmm. And as the Times put it, perfectly dead. Oh, there you go. I'm really uh, throwing some side-eye at the phrasing in some of these accounts. Once he realized what he'd done, Smith was said to be much agitated. Millwood had been shot in the jaw. It was said to have gone in the mouth and out the back of the neck. Here is a thing. Okay. His face, according to the coroner's report, was black with gunpowder. That sounds like it's very close then. Exactly. Yes. That sounds like it's very close. Unless in those days, maybe gunpowder went really far after a shot, which doesn't seem right. super likely. I mean, it maybe a few feet. If that, it doesn't seem like if he's, I don't know, if he's 10 feet away from the guy, how could his face be described as black with gunpowder? So according to surgeon Mr. Fowler uh, from the examination, the gunshot wound on the left side of the lower jaw with a small shot about size number four, one of which had penetrated the vertebrae of the neck and injured the spinal marrow. So this confuses me because if it was a small shot, I'm wondering if it's not like buckshot. Uh-huh, yeah. Because he had a shotgun. And to me, that wouldn't be a small shot unless he had it filled with like buckshot, which would then kind of explain why there'd be more gunpowder because it's a bunch of loose little shells with a lot of gunpowder. Now, I want to clarify here, neither of us are gun experts, despite the fact that we live in Pennsylvania where people love to hunt. Uh, but neither of us are gun experts, so this is a lot of, you know, uh, as we like to say, rampant speculation. Yeah, you're on there. I'll cough if I try to sing with you. <laughs> she gave me that look again. Not going to happen. It was a different look then. Of course you did. It's, I'm not. Of course you are. Yeah, it's of course you are. But yeah, so that's my thought on it because that would, that would kind of explain off some of the gunpowder because there's a lot more gunpowder in the loose shots than there are in like the compact one large bullet. So Probably. I mean, we don't know... Maybe that's now. That's true. I, I, we don't know enough about guns back then and the, the development of firearms over the, the but, 220 years that have passed almost since then has been a lot. But so. Just with the context clues, though, saying it was a shotgun, but a small shot about size number four, one of which had penetrated the vertebrae of the neck. Yeah. Okay. One of which. So the phrasing there does indicate... Yeah, because that, that's like a quote from him is, is one of which had penetrated the vertebrae of the neck. And witness reports were that there was one gunshot. Yes. So that could, yeah, the phrasing there, if it was chosen carefully, could indicate that it was something like what we think of as buckshot now, if that was developed then, which again, we don't know. Well, I mean, even if you're just putting gunpowder in like a bunch of little bearings in, that would be multiple things. When I tell you about the, the superstition thing, 
after we talk about the Hammersmith ghost, this is kind of going to come up again oh, because cool. there was a really weird, some commentary in the coroner's report that I was trying to figure out what the hell was happening. <laughs> so this is this whole idea of pellets and everything is going to come up again. But yes, he is definitely one way or the other. He's dead. Super dead. Super, quite Perfectly dead. dead. Perfectly dead. That might be the subtitle. There is a post-mortem, as we said. The coroner releases his judgment. Thomas Millhood had been killed in, quote, a rash act of willful murder. Murder. Murder most rash and willful. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing with this accent, but I'm kind of enjoying it. I don't know. So... Smith was arrested. He didn't put up a fight or anything. and was said to be pretty disturbed by what he'd done. I hope so. And one would think, you killed a dude who was 23. He's only in jail for two days before the trial begins at the Old Bailey. Just think about how long it takes to get to a murder trial now. I know. I, I almost wish it would go back. But I... I like that they actually investigate things now. That's... I mean, that's important. They do need the time. Because there's... You need a lawyer on your side, if you're the defendant, who can go through all of the evidence. Because yes. you have discovery, wherein the prosecution has to hand over all the information that they come up with to the defendants. I know, but I miss counsel. the surprise of yesteryear, where they'd be like, bah ha ha, look what we have. <laughs> that did make trials a lot more interesting. I feel like trials used to be a lot more exciting, because you never knew what the hell was going to happen. Yeah, because nobody knew what the other side had. Here's the thing we haven't told you we've had on the murder weapon the whole time. They might even pop up with some new information in the closing arguments, for God's sakes, which is when you're supposed to not at all. Right, yeah, like closing arguments, they wheel in another body. They're like, <laughs> look what else we found at your apartment. Yeah, it's like, hey, look, we found an alibi. <laughs> yeah, like, I missed that. I want that back. The drama was definitely more interesting, but that's why we do these. So <laughs> that's part of the reason. So there are lots of character witnesses that speak quite well of Smith. The coroner himself says that Smith is not vindictive, but remarkably mild. A local wine merchant who had run to Smith's aid after the murder, I think that was Locke that you mentioned earlier, Yes, said he was mild, humane, and generous. And also buys a lot of wine. Apparently, yeah, that might be. Which, uh, also, I think he'd had a tipple or two before going on his ghost hunt, I believe. Uh, he he'd, did, actually. I, I did have that at... in my notes. It was, quote, after several ales. Oh, no. Who, who'd had a few ales at this point? Which maybe he had those at the Black Lion Inn. Probably. when I right there. Might as well just go get hammered and wander around with a gun, getting ready to shoot at anything you see move. I mean, if you got nothing better to do. Not really. Don't, don't do that. Don't do that. Yeah. So the watchman said that Smith was, quote, nothing like a cruel man. We even get one character witness saying he had known Smith for 15 years. And during that period, his life had been marked by singular acts of humanity and benevolence. The Catholic Church is two seconds away from sainting this dude right. in the witness's eyes, the character witness's eyes. He's such a nice guy. He's such a nice guy. And in the trial is also where we get the information from Millwood's sister, Anne, who was asked to testify. It was actually kind of sweet in the trial transcript where the attorneys were like, we're really sorry that you have to come and talk about this. She must have taken it really hard. I bet. I mean, obviously. She, she practically witnessed her brother's murder. And 
So they were just very apologetic. They were like, we're really sorry. We wouldn't ask you to do this unless it was absolutely necessary. It was, it was nice. We don't get that these days. Again. Now, Smith hadn't planned to testify. He said he was going to leave it to his counsel to testify to the jury for him. But then they were like, no, that's not how it works. They can't do that. So he did speak in his own defense. He said that when he went out, he didn't have any ill intentions. And when the incident happened, he didn't even know what he had done, insisted that he was innocent, and he'd never intended to take anyone's life. He deliberately went out, drank a few beers. With his gun. With a gun. With the intention of shooting an apparition. Or a person in a sheet. Or a person in a sheet. So I do think that he did intend to either do something nonsensical, which is to shoot at something that's non-corporeal, or take someone's life, which is to shoot at somebody who's walking around in a sheet trying to scare people. Yeah. And then he ended up shooting somebody who's just a bricklayer and not and even trying to scare aiming at the head. Yeah, at least like aim at the knee. It wouldn't matter back I, then. I feel like... still probably die. <laughs> yeah, I know. But I feel like at the same time, like if it's just somebody like running around scaring the kids, like at least, yeah, take their legs. They won't be running after anybody. There you go. Yeah. I don't know. So the Lord Chief Baron, which from what I can tell is kind of in charge of things in the trial, said that once both the prosecution and defense had rested, he goes to the jury and he says in his statement to them that there's nothing he's heard that would change the charge to anything but murder. And I have a long quote here from the Newgate calendar, which sums up the Lord Chief Barons, or as I'm calling them, the LCB. LCB. <laughs> the LCB his statement to the jury, because I think it's important to establish, because this does kind of eventually be, it, it's argued a lot in legal precedence. Yeah. Well, as well it should be. Yeah, really. So here we go. Although malice was necessary to make out the crime of murder, it was not necessary, according to law, to prove that the prisoner had known the deceased or had cherished any malice or, as was vulgarly called, spite against him. Spite is vulgar, so I think your uh, your idea that damn is a bad word <laughs> is probably the case. If a man should fire into the hall where he was now sitting and kill anybody at random, such a deed was murder. On the same principle, if a person was killed by design, without any authority, but from a supposition that the person ought to be killed, such an act was also murder, unless the killing was accidental. If a man went out armed on the highway, intending to shoot robbers, and should decide in his own mind that an individual whom he might see was a robber, and should kill the man who was actually not a robber, such an act would be murder. So he's saying, even if you think in the moment that what you're doing is, is right and necessary in order to prevent further crime by the individual you're shooting at, it's still murder. He tells the jury that even if they think the person running around and pretending to be a ghost and scaring people, which was not Thomas Millwood, even if they think that person super sucks, still, Smith had no right to be judge, jury, and executioner, and that in his opinion, which in Britain, especially at that time, the judge, LCB, was 
much more within his rights to give his opinion as to the case. Mm-hmm. In his opinion, Smith had committed murder. Quote, there was a deliberate carrying out a loaded gun, which the prisoner concluded he was entitled to fire, but which he really was not. And he did fire it with a rashness, which the law does not excuse. We're going to have some bad news for the LCB in about a minute here. In all the circumstances of the case, no man is allowed to kill another rashly. There you go. Exactly. The judge is like, Smith went out all prepared to meet the person who was haunting the neighborhood. And then when he thought he saw him, he got so freaked out that he didn't even know what he was doing. That doesn't mean he's innocent. The jury deliberates for 45 minutes. Pretty long in those days. That's That's like a year in modern times. And came back with a verdict that Smith was guilty of manslaughter. And the justices on the bench said, that wasn't an option. No. They were like, it is, we already told you, murder or nothing. These are your options. Pick one. And they say to the jury, if you've believed everything that you've heard in this trial, then it's murder. And then... I kind of have a woe on this because it's, uh, let's just say it's interesting in context of stuff that's modern. This is something the justices on the bench said. Even with respect to civil processes, if an officer of justice uses a deadly weapon, it is murder if he occasions death by it even although he had a right to apprehend the person he had so killed. They're saying even if an officer of justice, which watchmen, early policemen, kills somebody, if... Uh, yeah. <laughs> if he thought he had a right to do this, to apprehend them, it's still murder. Just uh, interesting to chew on and think about, you know? They say... Outright, this is murder upon every point of view in the eyes of the law if the facts prove it and your job as a jury is not to come back with a charge that we didn't give you. It's to decide whether or not the facts prove murder. Yeah, yes or no. Was this murder? Was this not murder? That's all we're asking. You don't get to make up other things. Yes, exactly. The jury then literally turns around. They didn't go away for 45 minutes. They turned around, had a short discussion, and came back with a guilty verdict. There you go. Smith is given a death sentence and is set to be executed the following Monday. Because again, justice, frighteningly quick. That part I don't like. Very swift. Granted, we keep people on death row for years, partially due to the length of time it takes to get through appeals. But... At the same time, it feels like you don't have enough time to realize if you've made a mistake when it's like three days later. But you know what? I love that they not only sentenced him to death, but they're like, and after he's dead, we were, we're going to uh, send his body to a medical college to be dissected. Well, that's what they did. I know. It's amazing. I, I'm not entirely sure when it became an option to dissect anybody but those who were executed. But that was essentially their only way of dissecting human bodies and learning more about the human form and about what's going on on the inside of us was because, you know, there's a, this is a person who committed a crime. So we can do this thing. Otherwise, if it's not a person who committed a crime. I yeah. wonder if they had a say in it. Like, hey, we have a lot of hanged bodies. 
Could we just do like um like a bullet next time or something? You're making the neck look weird. Yeah, we really need to look at the neck. We're really interested in examining the spine, and you're sort of damaging that just a little bit. <laughs> so just just shoot him in the head, please. Firing squad, maybe. I don't know. No, I don't think they really had much of an option. <laughs> they were they were just lucky to get what they could get. So that's why grave robbers were such a thing. They weren't just robbing the graves of valuables, they were robbing the graves of bodies and taking them to medical professionals so that they could, you know, on the sly, have more bodies to dissect so they could learn more about their profession, about medicine, about how we work as human beings. Got a fresh one for you, Doc. Oh, exactly, yes. Someday we'll do Birkin here. Someday. <laughs> so, death sentence. And uh, it's funny that I said a minute ago, you know, now we have time to realize we've made a mistake. Because kind of that's essentially what happens here, at least in their eyes. But Smith is upset. He doesn't even have the power to stand on his own. The Newgate calendar says he needs the aid of a friendly bystander to stay on his feet. The friendly bystander, meanwhile, is like, I just came here for the show. <laughs> Am I going to carry this guy? Right? Jeez. And his family is there. They're super upset. But the Lord Chief Baron, old LCB, knows that there's huge public sentiment in the area and it's everybody feels really bad for smith they feel like he made a mistake it wasn't his fault so the lord chief baron immediately reports the verdict to the crown the crown sends back a respite during pleasure which basically means put a pause on the execution while, while we take some time to figure shit out so they are actually taking the time in this case but only because of that action by the LCB. Which is it, weird, because it almost felt like he forced the hand to sentence him to death, too. Yeah, I know. He's, he's kind of playing both sides of the, the, the field here. And George III was king. We talked about him in the God Made Me Do It Extra Extra. So Indeed. He was just uh, four years after somebody tried to kill him because God made him do it. The king pardons Smith. Sentences him to a year in prison. I believe it was hard labor. So then, the actual Hammersmith ghost... Maybe. Maybe. Steps forward. This episode is sponsored by Crazy Is As Crazy Does, The Life of a Serial Killer by John H. Mudgett. We know you love a good crime story, and that's why you need to read Crazy Is As Crazy Does, The Life of a Serial Killer by John H. Mudgett winner of a 2021 ELIT Book Award silver medal in the horror category. Crazy Is As Crazy Does, The Life of a Serial Killer follows John Goodman, a killer who hones his murderous skills over the course of 75 bloody years. You love suspense, and you love a good story, and this book serves up both on a silver platter with a few severed heads for good measure. So check out Crazy Is As Crazy Does, The Life of a Serial Killer by John H. Mudgett. Ebook available on Amazon and paperback on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Links are in the show notes. A man named Graham who was a shoemaker. Why? Why was this man running around in a white blanket and scaring the crap out of people? His excuse was that his apprentices were telling his children ghost stories and freaking them out. 
So he got pissed off and decided he's going to give his apprentices a taste of their own medicine. He grabbed a white blanket, probably for God's sakes, cut eye holes in it. (laughs) I imagine, yeah. Goddamn Snoopy cartoon. (laughs) And then went out when his apprentices were on their way home and jumped out at them. But that's only one sighting. Not only that, that's his shoemaker's apprentices. Why the brewer? Why the pregnant lady? Why the servant? Why the travelers? Yeah. If even one of those reports is true, then why is he apparently attacking people who aren't his intended targets? Doesn't make sense. Right? Now, kind of faded away. There were a few other reports years later of the Hammersmith ghost. Probably a copycat deal, maybe. Or just people having fun. And then in the 1830s, Spring-Heeled Jack came around. We have an episode about Spring-Heeled Jack. I feel like it's probably in the first 30 or so, so just scroll way back. And the Hammersmith ghost faded away. So what we have here is ghost stories that are scaring children and then led to somebody pretending to be a ghost. One time. Probably. Which led to the community being scared which led to Thomas Millwood being shot and killed, which led to Thomas Millwood becoming a ghost story in the community. Yes, actually, there are reports that his spirit still lingers in the Hammersmith pub, which he was carried to after he was shot and killed. This is an excellent example of mass hysteria. Yes, oh my gosh. A ghost story begot a ghost story begot a ghost story. It's like the biblical lineage of ghost stories. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because it was uh, 20 years after this that there became sightings again, but this time he could breathe fire. I love that. So he's part ghost, part dragon. I believe if I remember correctly, and again, it was like two years ago, so don't come at me if I am remembering wrong, but I think Spring-Heel Jack also, yes, I believe there was blue fire involved there, Ah. if I remember right, that he he spat. Yes, but uh, apparently Millwood is now a ghost himself yes uh, for real this time for for real yes there is at the black lion pub a sign commemorating the ghost come to our social media on facebook twitter and instagram we are old timey crimey on all of them to see it or you know google i guess if you want but Lame. <laughs> there's now tales of millwood's ghost haunting the pub a former chef who both worked at the pub and lived in a flat above it said he had some experiences with the ghost There were about a half a dozen times he would be sleeping in his flat. No one else was there. And he would be awakened by someone saying his name. Creepy. But the current general manager and his wife live there now, or at least as of the most recent article I read. And they say that neither they nor their Lhasa Apso Bernie have seen or sensed any sort of paranormal activity. Bernie's a funny name for Lasso-Apso. It's... That's a weird name. It's so old man. But, dogs aside, the general manager's wife does admit that one of her friends thinks she once saw Millwood's ghost run past her in the hall. Yes, that is a funny name. Amber is showing me a picture of a Lasso-Apso. Bernie is a hilarious name to give that dog. It has very long hair. That kind of looks like a Bernie, though. A little bit in the face, yeah. When you look in the face with the long hair, a little bit of a Bernie. Yeah. It's like an old man that's a hippie. Yes. 
So the general manager's wife says that they get a lot of visitors specifically about the ghost story and not just nationally. Uh, They've had visitors from as far as Poland come because they'd read about the Hammersmith ghost. But I do have to mention that also the Wikipedia article about Hammersmith tells us that the district has been a hub for London's Polish community for a long time. Okay, so that's not a stretch. Yeah, they have other reasons. In fact, the Polish Social and Cultural Association in Hammersmith is home to one of the largest collections of books written in Polish outside of actual Poland. Oh, okay. So it kind it of feels like... It makes sense that they would travel that far then. But yeah. like, I'm here for the books, but also, do you have a specter? Yes. Can I see a spirit? Is that vodka? All right, I'll take it. Close enough. Yeah. So let's talk about how the law dealt with this idea of, of killing or harming someone thinking that you're defending yourself, but you're mistaken about the situation and you aren't really at risk, which is, which is exactly what happened with Francis Smith and Thomas Millwood. It also sounds uh, surprisingly like something that happened recently where a woman was at her house and the police just broke in and started shooting at them. Does sound similar to that Mm. too, yes. In Britain, they wouldn't really have an answer to how to deal with this situation until 1983. And even then, the Lord Chief Justice, which I feel like is what the Lord Chief Baron turned into maybe, I'm I'm speculating there, I don't know. I'm not going to sit there and research what a That's lord fine. the the trail of Lord Chief Baron to Lord Chief Justice. I've gotten I've gone down too many rabbit holes. Let's so, just call him Lordy Judge. Lordy Judge. The Lordy Judge said that this issue quote has been the subject of debate for more years than one likes to think about, and the subject of more learned academic articles than one would care to read in an evening. So, in the case where they settled it, I'm really super summing up here. You had a man who saw a kid mugging a lady. Man caught the kid, the mugger. Another dude comes along, and he only sees the second half of that. He sees the man restraining a child. The kid, a teenager, yeah. So he read the situation wrong, and he thought, oh man, this, this guy's just assaulting a kid. So the second dude, Mr. I just walked up and saw what happened, or half of it, Fought the guy who was restraining the mugger. They come to the conclusion that if the accused had a reasonable belief that force is necessary either to protect himself or to prevent a crime, even if that's not actually the case, it's only his perception, then he's good to go. Well, okay, so in that case, nobody got shot, nobody died. And I definitely agree with that in that case because... You're walking upon a full-grown man assaulting a child. I would hope that you would punch that guy in the face. You only have a certain amount of information to work with. And the information you have to work with definitely implies that the man who is restraining a child is in the wrong. Yes. So, I get it there. I feel like when it extends into murder, it might be different. (laughs) I don't know if they super extend it into murder or if it's just assault cases like that, where it's kind of, I don't know, mistaken assault, you might think but of you it know, as. But, you know, it's definitely a gray area because you just have a bunch of people who are trying to do what's right. Yeah. And and what it, they if, think is right. Here's the thing, though. If, if you start saying, don't take any action whatsoever, 
that's when people die on the street because no one will help. Yeah, exactly. So it's a really hard line to walk where you say you're guilty if you did this, even if you believed you were in the right. And then then we're in slippery slope territory, essentially. It so really we, we can't is. really, we're not, they haven't figured it out, essentially, as far as we can tell, aside from that kind of deciding precedence case. I, I feel like it really, it has to be case by case. And, and yeah, yeah. Does the, it has to be, maybe does the jury believe that in that moment, the person they, who. They thought they were saving somebody or helping somebody. Exactly. They thought that they were being, uh, what's the word for it? Doing good to society. Well, yeah, but there's a word for it. Oh my God, this is going to drive me crazy. I actually do have to look it up. No, but I, re- I really do think that that has to be case by case. In that scenario, were you doing what you felt was right? Good Samaritans. The Good Samaritans. The Good yes. Samaritans, yes. If you think you're being a Good Samaritan, it feels like you can't fault somebody for that. But when we look at the case of Francis Smith, he well, didn't need to take it that far. He didn't is the need problem. to. He wasn't being attacked in any way, shape, or form. Exactly. He just saw somebody in white and assumed that that was the person who had been terrorizing the village and that this is not somebody who's attempting to harm him in any way. This is not somebody who's actually breaking any laws. So, so think about it like this. So, so we live near a lot of graveyards. And um, if you're walking through the graveyard at night and you see somebody who looks a little spooky, you have no right to shoot them. Now, if you're walking through a graveyard at night and you're seeing a person attacking another person, then maybe you have a right to shoot him. Yes. I would say if he came upon, let's say, the ghost attacking the pregnant woman or the servant or anybody. Yes, exactly. Then you're, you're walking into the commission of a crime. That's a different moment than literally a person dressed in white walking towards you and not answering yes. what I'm almost certain is just one call. Yes. <laughs> but like if you hear somebody yelling, help, help, that's a pretty good sign that that person needs help. Exactly. Um, I think that's why case by case basis... And do I think he should have been put to death for it, Francis Smith? Not really, although the laws at the time were pretty much like, yeah, you committed murder, dead, in a couple days. Yeah, but because, okay, so now I'm thinking about just having sex in a cemetery because this is where I go. That so is where you go. There is, there is certainly a gray area. So say you have a couple getting busy in the cemetery, and the woman hears you coming and goes, no, no, stop. Now you think that she's being raped. And you're being a good Samaritan by removing that guy from the situation. So, like, it's it's really a big gray area. It is a big gray area. I just want to say you made it a lot grayer and more confusing with your use of the word coming in that context. <laughs> I'm just saying. You're I'm just welcome. saying. Vocabulary choices in that case might be How do you know it wasn't on purpose? I'm pretty sure it was. <laughs> so... All also, right. for those of you who have not fucked in a cemetery, have at it. <laughs> it's Amber approved. It is Amber approved. It's creepy. It's fun. <laughs> it's spooky weenie time. Oh, it's spooky weenie time. Oh, my God. All right. All right. So I have a tale to tell you in okay. addition. I went down a little rabbit hole because when I was, I was using the Newgate calendar. You as... should fuck in that rabbit hole. <laughs> I was using the Newgate calendar as one of my sources. And I scrolled down a little bit. After reading about the Hammersmith ghost, and what do I find but this picture? I love pictures. So I'm showing Amber this picture. That's an oddly erotic execution. 
kind of, I don't think for the lady involved, but so this will be again on our social media. Uh, and it is a man who is hanged at the gallows and they are forcing a woman to accept his hand basically upon her breast. It's like right at the top of the boob. So you get to feel a little booby before you die. No, he's dead. He's oh. executed. He's been hanged. So I'm going to be telling Amber about the dead man's hand. The dead man's hand is a little hard to research because it's also a poker hand. Yes. Which actually has to do with Wild Bill Hickok and the hand of poker he supposedly had when he was killed, which from my scanning through search results and trying to find stuff that's not related to that, a lot of them seem to be like, we don't know what it actually was. <laughs> we don't know this for sure. But anyhow, that's a different thing. So in this case, the illustration that I showed you, I have a murder story to go along with our superstition. Okay. So the man being hanged was William Henry Hollins. This was in 1814 in London. He had worked with a man named Jay Pilcher and Pilcher died on his deathbed, Pilcher asked Hollins to look after his wife and his daughter. His daughter was named Elizabeth, or Betsy, as we'll call her. Okay. She was 20 years old and working as a live-in servant for a Mr. Cartwright. Hollins was 45. And he, in the year after Betsy's death, was frequently visiting Betsy. Decided he was in love with her, so he was harassing her and she was rejecting him. Okay. Mm-hmm. So on the evening of July 4th, 1814, he went to the Cartwright house and asked for Betsy. She came outside, and then they were only out there for a few minutes when a gunshot and a female scream were heard. The butler comes running. He had actually been the one to call Betsy down and, you know, escort her out. So he was right there. He actually was so close, he caught Betsy as she fell. And he pulled her into the house. Hollins follows them inside. The watchman comes. And they have this conversation, which we are going to uh, give you a dramatic reading of. And I will be Hollins, and you can be the watchman. Okay. All right. Do not seize me. I shall not run away. No, I shall take good care you shall not run away. I believe you have killed the woman. Have I? I believe you have. Is she dead? I believe she is. Well, let me kiss her cold lips, poor girl. I loved her. That's fucking creepy. Yes, it is. Okay. Very. That's why we did a reading. <laughs> Thank you. She actually was not dead. She was shot under her right breast and wouldn't die for six more days. That is a hell of a way to go. Yeah, I know. It's not, it's not great. No, no. Poor thing. Oddly enough... The gun had exploded when he fired it. He had loaded it to the muzzle, and I think with pellets. So I think he had overloaded the gun to the extent that it exploded. Again, not a firearms expert, especially not 1800s firearms. They arrested him, and he admits that he did it because she refused to comply with his wishes, as he puts it. He wouldn't say exactly what those wishes were, but did say that he was in love with her. Did I mention he's married? He's married. Not living with his wife, but still married. Twice her age. No, to an end. Yeah, 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 yeah. Twice her age. Her father's friend. Mm -hmm. Her father's friend. Her father who asked him to take care of her mm -hmm. before he passed away. Yep. 
Yep, yep. He says he never intended to kill her. He just meant to kill himself. He yeah. pointed the gun the wrong way. Exactly, yeah. So you want to turn, turn, turn it around, turn it around. Uh, so he did actually uh, have some arsenic on him that he tried to take after shooting her. But in all the tumult and the explosion of the gun, the vial of arsenic had been tossed aside. Some of it had spilled. And so he didn't, wasn't able to take enough to, to do the job. Well, that's a shame. Yeah, you're waiting until you hear this part. They, of course, also took his guns, plural, he had two, and examined them. They had the initials J.P. carved into them. J. Pilcher. They had been Betsy's father's guns. Uh... After his death, Hollins bought them off of Betsy's mother and then shot Betsy with her dead father's gun. Nice. Nice. Very nice. Good guy. Good guy. So he was tried for murder in September, and the whole story was basically told by witnesses. The surgeon testified that he did an autopsy after the death, found the gunshot wound in her right side, and this is where I kind of spent a lot of time staring at it and trying to figure out what was happening. He said he found 300 pellets in her liver and 200 in her bowels and described them as very small pellets. So if First, when I was kind of confused. It's more of a bird shot. Yeah, that's kind of what I'm, that's a lot of pellets. Well, bird shot is lots and lots of little pellets. And that way, like, from, if if you're trying to kill a bird, they're very quick and they fly very fast. Mm -hmm. So you want all these pellets that go out far Mm. so that if it takes off, you'll be able to still hit it. Widens your chances, essentially. Yes. And from close range, it would just shoot hundreds of pellets into her. Oh, God, this poor girl. If it, if the, and if the gun exploded and he had it filled up with tiny pellets, but 200 and 300 does still sound like a lot. It is a lot, but it was close range, so all the pellets went inside of her, and since they're very small, they probably just bounced around. And I mean, for it to go into her, her liver and her bowels, her body was probably trying to filter them out, and that's just where they collected. Because oh. the liver is what cleans the blood. So anything in the bloodstream would eventually go down to the liver. Makes sense. And anything that hit her digestive system, like oh her esophagus, her stomach, or her intestines, would eventually end up in the bowel. And they say under the right breast. I mean, that could be one inch under. It could be two inches under. It could be three inches under. It, yeah. I mean, under the right breast, we don't know how specific they were. It could have been into her liver. <laughs> like, it could have been into her. It could have been yeah. a direct shot to the liver, too. Yeah. yeah. So, and then it's the defense's turn. And... So he gives a defense. This is, this is his defense. I had a most serious regard for the young woman, as I had for my own child. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Trying to fuck your own kids? I never thought, nor never had it in my mind to injure the poor girl. I respected her and loved her and would have done as much for her as I would for my own child. Repetitious. I declare in the sight of a just God in your lordship, as to the manner I fired that piece off, I know no more. Then your lordship. He's like, I don't know how I shot that gun any more than you do. <laughs> Which is uh, bullshit. No. You were there. You were there. And for the defense, they bring up people who had witnessed strange conduct from Hollins in the past. Because I think they're trying to get an insanity defense. Like a landlord who said that Hollins didn't sing. He hummed. I don't know how that's proof. But... And sometimes his room was wetted all over, which I don't know if he was just 
like water or piss or alcohol. I don't know. I feel like he was probably peeing everywhere. Maybe, yeah. And that sometimes he was melancholy. But there are some more convincing reports. We have a publican's daughter who used to serve him breakfast and said he was frequently incoherent and would also be writing, but it wasn't writing. It was just scribbling. So he would say, I'm writing, and it was just random scribbles. A man who knew him three years ago said he used to keep the whole neighborhood up with his, quote, screams and hallooing. Okay, it sounds like this guy's like a a heavy drinker to me. That kind of sounds about right, yeah. We do have, speaking of, an actual old-timey, crimey pub name. Okay. In the trial transcript, Hollins used to spend a lot of time at the Cottage of Content. Oh. Which there's not one in London. Of course I looked. There's a there's two in other places in England. So another report that a year and a half before the murder, so even before Betsy's father died, somebody had witnessed him in his room biting his pillows. And when asked why he was doing this, he said it was for Betsy. That is creepy. I don't like it. I I don't like it. And, uh, yeah, it gets worse. Another old neighbor, a married mother of six, testifies that uh, he came on to her or groped her, maybe worse. It's it's hard to tell from old-timey talk. And this is in the transcript of the trial. I had not been very long in that neighborhood before he made love to me, which I looked up on Edom Online (laughs) to make sure. And it tells us that made love did not become a euphemism for sex until 1950, Prior to that, it was to pay amorous attention to. So, yeah, it's kind of uncertain to what degree of harassment this was. But there was definitely harassment. And, of course, it pissed her husband off. But who was he mad at? Probably her. Exactly. Uh, Mr. Bennett was very angry with me. It made me very uncomfortable. This poor woman, for God's sakes, mother of six. And she's like, can't. You can't leave me alone, and then I got my husband being pissed at me for what you're doing. Forgot, I'm just trying to take care of the kids. <laughs> leave me alone. Yes. So, he is found guilty of murder, sentenced to hang, and that goes into action two weeks later. He's being hanged with another murderer named Mitchell, and this was the biggest show in town, of course, according to the Newgate calendar. At 7 o'clock on Monday morning... The Old Bailey and Giltspur Street were crowded to agree almost unprecedented. Much money was given for indifferent seats at the top of the houses opposite the debtor's door, and carts, wagons, and other vehicles were in requisition. They just pile in with rented carts and wagons and stuff, I guess. Before he's hanged, he makes a final statement. Here you see I stand, a victim to passion and barbarity. My crime is great, and I acknowledge the justice of my sentence. But oh, the unfortunate girl I loved, I adored as one of my own. I have made contrition and prayed for forgiveness. And there's a bunch of stuff about God. May you and the world take warning by my example. And then there's a bunch of stuff about God. He shook hands with the officers of justice, told the reverend who was attending the hanging that he was quite happy, and then he was hanged. And then it got weird. Yeah, I was, I was wondering when that picture was coming to happen. Yeah, it comes right about five minutes after that. So this is 1800s dermatology, apparently. 
according to the Newgate calendar. After they had, he and Mitchell, after they had hung for some time, three females were introduced for the application of the dead man's hand, supposed to remove marks, wens, etc. The first was a young woman of interesting appearance who was so much affected by the ceremony that she was obliged to be supported. I'm going to explain all that. Wens are like a sebaceous cyst, a pimple, something along those lines. Any sort of mark, really. And marks are obviously marks. Warts, etc. Probably other pimples. Anything. Maybe even a birthmark, a mole. Lots of dermatological things. And she was so much affected by the ceremony that she was obliged to be supported. You noticed in the illustration that I showed you, they were essentially holding her up. She was so freaked out at the idea of having a dead guy's hand stuck on her boob to remove some warts or whatever that she probably fainted or went into shock or some sort of panic attack or something. Yeah. But they were like, but you have to be pretty. And you're not pretty when you have this mark. So we're going to put this dead guy's hand on you and that's going to fix it. But I, I have wonder. Okay, so I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get a little medically on you. So just because it was on her boob, I'm half wondering if it wasn't some sort of mastitis, like she was breastfeeding and a milk duct got inflamed. Oh. Because that would be extremely painful and can also sometimes make red marks. And I'm wondering if that's not why it was on her boob. I mean, it could be that. Uh, I get, they're generally on my torso, but I don't know what they're called. I think of them as blood spots, and I think that's kind of similar to what my dermatologist called them. Oh, yeah, I've, I have those. Just little tiny red marks, just little tiny red circles. Yeah. And I don't know what they're from, but it could even be that. I mean, for all we know, it could be freckles, but mastitis is definitely an option. <laughs> just because it's on her boob, I'm just like, and she looks miserable. and She does. Like she's going to pass out or puke or both. Yeah, yeah. Now, I just want to point out, this dude was harassing a poor girl, half his age, over half his age, then killed her. And then even in death, they forcibly grope women with his dead hands so that they're not so unsightly or whatever. Yeah. So I just want to point out how much that pissed me off because it was a lot. I have some more on this superstition. Okay. It's pretty interesting. I found an article called Notes on the Human Hand from an 1888 anthropological journal. And yes, even in anthropological journals in 1888, I can tell you from personal experience, they were still using the word savages. I hate this already. I know, right? The doctor writing the article says, A short time ago, while in the room where the corpse of a lovely young girl lay awaiting burial... I noticed that many of the passing visitors lifted the hand of the dead and applied it to some part of their own bodies, head, arm, face, breast. He asks around and is told that it's a cure for various disorders. Finds out that the young girl had lived a notably pure and holy life that especially seemed to guarantee that her dead hand would cure warts, headaches, minor afflictions, even tumors. Which, they would mistake anything for tumor, possibly. That, that could be a catch-all. Not a tumor. Not a tumor. And he investigates even further, finds it reports of it happening with a deceased nun and a deceased priest. And, quote, in both of these cases, throngs of people pressed to obtain the coveted touch, end quote. So creepy. It's super creepy, but it's spooky ween, so we're getting creepy. 
that seems to have some Roman Catholic believers who are uh, adherents to this superstition, but it's not limited to that faith at all. And the doctor here recounts stories he heard from a friend of a friend, basically, where people were cured by letting the dead grope them. He's very credulous throughout a lot of this. He does also mention someone who uh, cured a white swelling somewhere on their person after stealing a murderer's hand. So we go from the, the pure and the holy and the saintly to murderers. It seems like it runs on both sides of the morality spectrum, we might say. Well, it really, it just depends on, did God make them do it or did the devil make them do it? There you go. That's a good point. <laughs> and very related to our extra extras last month and this month. So he does then go on to say that the moral quality of the hand owner seems to be important, which totally contradicts the previous sentence about the murderer's hand doing the, the, doing the job and, and curing things after he'd just gone on for like three paragraphs about saintly people's hands curing things. So mm -hmm. he's, not, he's not a super logical writer, is what I'm saying, but that's okay. No, it's not. People will, according to him, dig up graves to get a dead hand. So we've got even more grave digging going on. You need a dead hand. I mean, you need a dead hand. We just will not let the dead rest. Or they'll just hang out at the gallows tree on execution day so they can get what is called... The dead stroke. Oh. Even children are brought to do this by their nurses and nannies. Oh. It's horrifying. Some incorporate other elements into the sort of ritual, like direction and numbers. For goiter, apparently you're supposed to apply nine times from east to west and nine times from west to east. Wax on, wax off. Oh my god, yes. Yes, exactly. Oh, I don't like this. I <laughs> know. He talks about how this is a superstition that has deep and ancient sources. I guess necrophilia has been around for a minute, but... I guess. He says that the Greeks in ancient times wore the fingers and toes of a murdered relative to avert the vengeance of the Furies. Yeah, sometimes the Greeks got a little weird. I would like to, again, I did not actually look further into that particular Thank one. Thank you for not. Yeah, because, because no. I'm, I'm only subjecting myself to a certain amount of creepy horror. Um, and uh, We're at I'm, the limit now. I'm basically just reporting what a, an 1880s anthropologist had to say about all this. So take it with that big of a grain of salt. Maybe a grain of salt that's about the size of him. But there was definitely a, a or a superstition. one of the pellets in uh, Betsy's body. No, I'm I'm literally saying a, an anthropologist-sized grain of salt. <laughs> so, and in addition, you had to wear those dead fingers and toes under your armpit. Ah, okay. <laughs> I don't know what's going on here. Uh, I lost the plot on this a long time ago because it's so freaking weird. He he takes a th thread further to discuss other. Because it's notes on the hand. It's not just on notes on the, the dead hand. He connects it to the laying on of hands, done by the living, of course. And then here's where he seems super credulous. This guy will believe anything. I, I have a, a bridge in Brooklyn to sell him. Most of us have had personal experience of the wide extent of this notion. Who has not seen the suffering from nervous headache decidedly benefited by the touch of the hand of some cool and composed person? 
Often, perhaps always, the calming of the nervous irritation is brought about by suggestion and the general composure and quiet of the operator, which I guess he is saying is kind of placebo effect and somebody else's demeanor affecting yours, but he also is like, I've totally seen people cured by the laying on of hands. So mm -hmm. it's a little, it's a little much for me. And of course, it's not just done for health purposes. He goes on to tell this little anecdote. Oh, goody. This is, uh, this is something. During the winter of 1885-86, an entire hand was stolen from the dissect dissecting room of the Georgetown Medical College in this city. The janitor of the college was a white man of decidedly bohemian habits and at the time was living with an illiterate woman of the southern poorer class. Well, at least he didn't make the subtext super. You know what he's saying there, but at least he's not using the N-word. The woman had conceived a passion for a dead hand, equal to that which Iago had for Desdemona's handkerchief, and many a time had begged him to steal it. This he did. When asked what she intended to do with it, he stated that she believed that she could use it for luck and to find money and treasure with. Gotta love both classism and racism in unsourced anecdotes. I feel like it was like the first rabbit's foot. Like, do you remember when we were younger? He did. He did reference rabbit's foot, mole foot, even bear paws. Things like that being carried around for luck. He referenced a senator who was said to always have a rabbit's foot on his person. So... It does go into much stuff with hands. I mean, palmistry and all this stuff. But I didn't get. I didn't go that far into it because I, we've we've reached the creepiest yeah. level. But he does bring up the hand of glory. We have talked about this on this podcast, but it was a long time ago. It was before Amber Times, actually. Before the Amber Times. <laughs> before the Amber Times, it was in the Christie and Scott era, and then there's the Christie Amber Scott. Epoch, epoch, I've never known how to say that. And now we're in the Christy and Amber show. Show. Yeah, okay, thank you. I was like, it's the Christy and Amber show. <laughs> that was excellent. I was like, I've used era, I've used epoch. What's the other word? I don't have one, but you you you, you saved that. So thank you. You're welcome. So we talked about the hand of glory. I think it was episode 12, Bella in the Witch Elm. How that's maybe tied to all of this is that a hanged man's hand had power if you used certain very specific processes to turn it into a candle. Although, with the Hand of Glory, it's not necessarily healing so much as powers you can use for ill, like unlocking doors and striking people motionless. I, I'm just picturing somebody running around with an arm and just bashing people over the head with it. Motionless! Ha-ha! <laughs> I mean, it's just a hand, but you, you could give someone a nice good slap across the face that might get them. So in this anthropological article, there was a French translation of the original Latin of a description of how to make a hand of glory and what it could do. He didn't translate it out of the French, though. It's just all this English, and he's like, well... This is translated from Latin to French. Here you go. Have fun. Just assuming. Good luck, assholes. <laughs> yeah. So I used my phone to translate it. And so Google Translate gave me this phrase at one point. It made those to whom it was presented in mobile so that they could not jerk off until dead. Oh, perfect. That was something to read. Especially, Can't masturbate yourself to death now, guys. Especially to read it about a disembodied hand. <laughs> so that's supposed to be magical. There's just a lot there. Finish this off. 
I do have a poem. Okay. It's on how to create the hand of glory, and it is quite spooky, so I think it fits. Okay. And so it's allowed. I'm going to read it as spookily as I can without embarrassing myself, hopefully. From the corpse that hangs on the roadside tree, a murderer's corpse it needs must be. Sever the right hand carefully. Sever the hand that the deed hath done. Ere the flesh that clings to the bones be gone, in its dry veins must blood be none. These ghastly fingers, white and cold, within a winding sheet enfold. Count the mystic count of seven. Name the governors of heaven. That's the seven planets. That's how far back this was. So, yeah. Then in earthen vessel place them, Bleach them in the noonday sun till the marrow melt and run, till the flesh is pale and wan as a moon in silvered cloud, as an unpolluted shroud. Next within their chill embrace, the dead man's awful candle place. A murderer's fat must that candle be. You may scoop it beside the wayside tree. Yum. Of wax and of Lapland's the same. Its wick must be twisted of hair of the dead by the crow and her brood in the wild waste shed. Whatever that terrible light shall burn, vainly the sleeper may toss and turn. His leaden lids shall ne'er unclose so long as that magical taper glows. Life and treasure shall he command who knoweth the charm of the glorious hand. But of black cat's gall let him I have care. And of Screech Owl's venomous blood beware. Those are supposed to be anti-hand of glory tools. Black Cat's gall and Screech Owl's blood. Okay. It's all very weird and super, super superstitious. <laughs> so. Yeah. And Yeah, and super weird. And there's even, uh, in some accounts, you're supposed to use in the creation of the, the candle part, horse dung. In in some All right, kind so of let's versions do of translation, body parts, bleach it out in the sun, scoop some fat. Make sure you get all that blood out. Make sure you get all the blood out. And you're um, scooping fat from under the tree, which they hanged, which from where they hanged, which means that they've been hanging there for a while because they might have done a putrefaction. Oh, I bet the smell is lovely. Oh yeah, they have that. That Yankee candle cannot compare. Apparently not <laughs> to this candle made of dead man's hand. Horse dung and putrefacted fat. Yum. <laughs> that is the scent of fall. <laughs> Forget your cinnamon. And please do because I hate it. No but pumpkin spice here. <laughs> right? Just dead guy and horse shit. I really want Yankee Candle to come out with that. Dead guy and horse shit. <laughs> dead guy and horse shit. <laughs> so <gasps> I might make a t-shirt. I don't know. <laughs> I put that out on the red bubble. So that is my weird superstition that I found that is super spooky and creepy and weird. And people actually forced women to come up and children to have dead man's hand placed on their person for the purpose of generally, it seems to be mostly curing blemishes, but apparently occasionally a headache too. I, w- I would like to say thank you, Christy, but um, no, <laughs> I did not need to know any of that. So instead of thank you, you'd like to say thanks. I hate it. Thanks, I hate it. You're welcome. <laughs> but Yankee Candle, get on it. Cause We're waiting. I really want dead guy and horse shit. Yeah, right. <laughs>
<laughs> Dead guy in a horseshit. The new false scent from Yankee Candle. They're never going to sponsor us. Well, and then and then we can all have good luck and and find fortunes as long as there's no screech owl blood. Yeah, exactly. And and open doors and make people motionless so they can't jerk off. So, I mean, I guess if you're motionless, one way or the other, you can't. So you're stuck. <laughs> so yeah, that is uh, the probably a fetish. Ghost. Oh my. That is the Hammersmith Ghost and also the Dead Man's Hand Superstition that we have brought to you this week. That is a rabbit hole I did not want to fall down. If you enjoyed falling down that rabbit hole, unlike Amber, you can, of course, join our Patreon. As I said earlier in the show, uh, there's also, uh, we have our merch on Redbubble, which maybe might have a candle. With Dead guy and horseshit candle. Dead guy and horseshit candle. We'll see if I can get around to that. It's got to be better than uh, Gwyneth Paltrow's goop candle. Right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, all these candles are horrible. So I just reflexively looked at the candle burning in this room. Which it, Jackson, is, it does not smell like vagina in here, guys. Yeah, Jackson lit it because he was like, the room smells like feet. And I'm like, well, there's a, there's a bunch of shoes. <laughs> there's like a lot of shoes because we have too many shoes in our house. So... But yeah, there's lots of ways you can support us. And honestly, you can find them all in the show notes. You can find them all in our link tree. I don't need to tell you. If you want to support us in those ways, you can. But you're also supporting us just by listening. And hey, hi, new listeners. Hi, new listeners. I can talk. I know words. (laughs) You know words. You super know words. So yes, thank you for joining us. We hope you are enjoying uh, the back catalog, I feel like at some point, just for people's preferences, just because the podcast has changed so much, we need to like put out like, okay, these episodes are Christy and Scott. Christy and Scott. Christy Amber and Scott. And the Christy and Amber show. Christy and Amber show. I love it. We'll put it, we'll put it into to eras of, of hosts. Yes. So at some point we need to like publish that, like in case anybody's curious. I don't know. Maybe I'll put it in the show notes of this one. <laughs> so. Maybe. But hey guys. Drop a review. Tell us what you think. Tell us what you think of who are your favorite group of hosts. I don't know. Just tell me what you think about things. You're really inviting criticism there. (laughs) Because they're not only going to tell us their favorite group, they're going to tell us why. (laughs) But that's okay. Just tell us you love us. I mean, that'll do too. That that will That was actually what I was going for is just tell tell me how much you love me. I need validation. Yes. Yes. We're very much people who love validation. So, yeah. Would you buy a candle of dead guy and horseshit? Let us know. <laughs> I mean, you might need to watch what you say in the reviews because I think Apple censors some shit. Literally some shit. Fine. <laughs> Horse poo. There you go. Horse poo. So, thank you for joining us. And pretty much all of my bullshit is in the show notes. You guys can click links. You know how to do it. Uh, and it's a lot of it's on the social media, too. So I'm just going to cut it short there. And Amber, what are you doing this week? Also, I have to pee. So that's I have motivation. to pee really, really badly. I am working uh, crazy amounts of hours and putting things away. And I'm supposed to be getting my new table this week. So I will have lots of excitement there and uh, probably lots of cuts and bruises by next week. Oh, yes. What are you doing? Uh, I have some writing to do. I'm going to be doing some writing this week. And Hemingway, uh, we've mentioned in a couple episodes that he was feeling ill. Literally all over my house, feeling ill. In every room. <laughs> Five times a day, he was feeling ill. We can and- make that a candle, too. <laughs> oh, yes. Hemingway puke candle. I'll just start putting glasses underneath him when he starts But. He's been doing much better these past couple of days. We've had very little, comparatively, feeling ill happening. And 
he was diagnosed with pancreatitis. So I'm going to be, I've gotten some great advice from a friend who had a cat that, that also experienced pancreatitis. I need to call the vet because the vet basically called on Thursday. I, I couldn't answer the phone. She left a message and then apparently just bolted out the door because I called two seconds later and she was already gone. <laughs> Sorry, she's left for the day. Yeah, exactly. And she was, it was Thursday and they were like, she won't be back till Monday. And I was like, well, thanks for delivering this. Meanwhile, but. she's probably standing right next to the receptionist just shaking her head no. Yeah. Like, <laughs> tell her I'm not here. I left her a fucking message. Yeah. So I'm going to be calling the vet tomorrow to make sure that I have all the information on how we can take care of him and make sure that he's, he's, he's happy and comfortable, which he's been very happy. You know, because I had to peel him off of your lap. My favorite cat. <laughs> he is such a love. When you came in, you didn't see, but when you came in, I was sitting on the couch. I was actually more like laying on the couch doing some embroidery. He came over and he just settled in on this pillow next to me. So I'm just like snuggled up with Hemingway, like cross-stitching and embroidering. And he's right next to me, all happy. He has a new favorite pillow. You know, cats like to pick a new favorite thing every month. So his spooky ween pillow is the, the dark blue one. But, but yes, yeah, so I'm going to be figuring out how we're going to handle that and what to expect a little bit more and you know if we need to be doing anything different than what we're doing now which we're already feeding him like the diet food he's not thrilled with it but he's eating it so people aren't thrilled with the diet food either so yeah, yeah, in fairness yeah. I mean I make a bomb ass salad but once I finish making that bomb ass salad it's like 700 calories <laughs> so. yeah, that's the thing though so like I, I make salads for like the, the kids and the family all the time and I hate salad I hate it so it's like I'll make it and then I'm like in the kitchen just like eating like lunch meat and cheese. <laughs> like you like that salad? Yeah, I spent like an hour cutting everything up. So good. Mm. All right, here's here's what you do. You put the lunch meat and cheese in the salad. Well, no, because I'm actually <laughs> trying to make it healthy for everybody else. Ah, yes. But fuck that. Yeah. Yeah. I make amazing salads, but I put like olives and pickles and these like fried garlic things I get it. That's oh, I like those. Yellow. I, those really talking about. Yeah. I, I snack put, on those. And croutons and everything. Once you put all that stuff in, you, you start to add it up and you're like, that's actually not as healthy as one would think. I may as well have just gone to McDonald's and gotten a salad. <laughs> that does make me want croutons though. <laughs> I was really hungry for bread one day. We didn't have any bread, so I was just eating croutons. It works. <laughs> Anyhow, so writing, taking care of Hemingway. And eating croutons. Eating croutons. That's what I'm going to be doing this week. So, listeners, thank you, as always, for listening to our spooky ween words. And we will see you next week with more spooky stuff as October continues. Bye. Bye. My sources this week are Jane Alexander in Londonist, Claire Fike, oh, damn it, Claire Feichart Ahalt on the Library of Congress blog, the book Apparitions or the Mystery of Ghosts, Hobgoblins, and Haunted Houses by Joseph Taylor, Sarah Lumen on Hammersmith and Fulham, the BBC Newgate Calendar, the Wikipedia article on Hammersmith. Ross McFarlane at the Welcome Library, the British and Irish Legal Information Institute, the Old Bailey Online, Frank Baker, MD in the American Anthropologist Journal, and from newspapers.com, thank you, Chris Garcia, The Times. My sources this week are the same article from Jane Alexander on Leninist, Library of Congress article by Kelly Buchanan, History of Yesterday by George Dillard, and Medium.com by Jed Graham. Now... 
They also, at the Black Lion Pub, get lots of... What did you see? What happened? I just started looking at pictures of dogs. <laughs> it's got a... Oh, my god! It has gosh. a purple hair clip. It has a purple hair clip, and its little tongue is blepping out. It, it certainly does not look like a Bernie. I love it. <laughs> Gotta so, put the photo away now. Yeah, yeah, that's hilarious. I want that dog in my life so bad. 